0: Like everybody that's coached a push-up has seen people that project their head forward at the ground as their first movement. It almost looks like they're they're like an inverted rooster or something like that. Yes. And um and it's like, you know, everybody tries to coach that in a certain way. And it's like that person that's doing that rooster push-up is literally opening their airway so that they can breathe in the position you've put them in. And now you're coaching. Has taken their ability to breathe away from them because you've simply closed off their airway. I mean, like, do you think that their organism isn't figuring out a way to manage the most important elements of being alive in that position? Like, it's their organism is going to take care of the most crucial factors. You, as the coach, can potentially give them a new strategy, but you have to be very respectful of the intelligence of of that organism's ability to survive at the most economical uh, methodology possible to it.
1: That was Dr. Pat Davidson talking about coaching a push-up in context of the survival mechanisms of the human body. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Freelap Timing System, Gym Aware, Kbox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speedmat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Freelap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The KBOX and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to Episode 88 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today we have none other than Dr. Pat Davidson who is now the Director of Training Methodology and Continuing Education at Peak Performance NYC. Pat is the author of Mass and Mass 2, which are strength and and size, obviously if you can't tell by the the title, (laughs) training manuals, uh, and is also a sought-out expert in the field regarding all things training and human performance. Pat has competed as a 175-pound strongman competitor, and he was also a two-time world champion qualifier in that discipline, He has experience in competitive uh, MMA and submission wrestling, and prior to his current work at Peak Performance, uh, Pat served several years as a university professor teaching exercise science. So this is a guy whose areas of expertise are many, and some of my favorite podcasts have had Pat on discussing the brain, the nervous system, its uh, training response, a lot of uh, dynamics and dopamine and Pat. Those episodes are mind-blowing, so if you haven't checked out some of his work on Derek Hansen and Robbie Burke's podcasts, those are must-listens, in my opinion. Um, I feel like i had heard Pat's name here and there before those, but once I had listened to those podcasts, I was really starting to keep track of what Pat was doing, and and I noticed a lot of the other guests that I've had, like Justin Moore, Cody Plofker, they uh, pay strong credit to Pat in terms of Uh, his mentorship to them in the world of postural restoration and it's a link to strength and conditioning basically a deeper look uh, a human movement breathing and how it relates to everything we do whether it be a squat a deadlift sprinting jumping uh, allowing us to have a a bigger lens when it comes to coaching athletes and that you see their hips are shifting to the side or the other or their neck is craned in a certain position to have the tools to not just say oh well you know, shift your weight to the other side or keep your head back. The, the postural restoration system is really just a great way to take a deeper look at the, the holistic function of the athlete and just have another great tool in your toolkit. One thing that I read in the last uh, few months that was really intriguing and I imagine if you're listening to this, perhaps you've uh, read it as well, was an article called uh, Knees In for the Win, uh, basically where Pat was dissecting the fact that Athletes who are reflexively getting under the bar, like an Olympic weightlifter, are often going to recover, and you're going to see their knees kind of click in a little bit on that way up, which really goes against kind of a sacred calvar feel. We tend to be so far in that uh, butt back, chest out, knees shoved out. Everything is like impinged on the extremes mentality, and how uh, Pat was just talking, and Pat kind of really dug in to joint dynamics and how knees clicking in actually is kind of a natural mechanism and it allows you to lift more weight more effectively and it also ties into the gait cycle which is really cool because anytime we can link stuff we're doing in the weight room to stuff that might be happening in dynamic movement i think that's a win i we know that the the biggest squatters and the biggest deadlifts uh they, basically the guys who win the 100 meter dash here at the olympics the 200 meter dash are not the powerlifting champions so it's important to know more about the how and the why when we're prescribing exercises for athletes and how things connect together. So today on the podcast, uh we're gonna chat, we're gonna kinda dig in more on those big lifts. So what are implications of butt back and chest out? Uh what is the difference between impingement and creating instability in lifting and what does it mean if you're a power lifter versus an athlete or a person in the general population? Uh Pat's gonna chat on his thoughts on setting up a deadlift Uh, relationship to the breathing cycle, hinging in relation to the breathing cycle. He's gonna talk about neck alignment and breathing and common movements uh, such as deadlifts and as you heard in the intro, pushups. Now we're gonna get into performing loaded functional squats in the PRI or postural restoration methodology to just get a little more out of those hammies. Uh, Pat's also gonna talk about uh, mindsets, uh, when to really try to feel things out and when you just gotta go for it in the weight room. Uh, This is an awesome episode. If you're in the weight room with athletes, in my mind, this is a must-listen. I think it's going to open your mind up, a new, or give you a new layer of awareness and some more There's things to keep in mind, tools in the toolkit and routes to look at in getting uh, the most we can out of our athletes and making the weight room the best it can be for their own growth and their own longevity. Really enjoyed sitting down with Pat. This was a really cool episode to record, put together, take notes on later. There's some great quotes in there, some really cool show notes. Let's get on to the episode, number 88, with Dr. Pat Davidson. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today.
0: Well, thank you, Joel. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I know you've had a, a lot of really great guests, and um, it's always a pleasure to, to be kind of added to something like that. And um, just look at this as a, a really good opportunity to get to know you and, and hopefully have your listeners uh, get to know me a little bit, too. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it, man. I've been meaning to have you on for a long time. I've always loved listening to uh, your knowledge and, and thoughts on other podcasts. And one of the things I really wanted to focus on today was just really uh, kind of getting into the finer details of some lift mechanics and cues and things coached in the weight room. Before we get started with the questions though, and, and this could definitely be like the nutshell version because I know you get asked this question a lot in context of the other podcasts you're on, but uh, can you give a brief intro on who you are, what you do, and, and what's new in the world of Pat Davidson?
0: Go yeah, on. like, you know, I think, um, you know, it's so it's so hard to do these intros. It's like, oh shit, man, I'm like, I'm 38 at this point. Like, I've kind of been in a lot of places and like, I've switched careers a few times in some ways and. It's it's hard to summarize all these things, but you know I'll just talk about where I'm at right now. So I'm I'm in New York City. Um, I'm working as a as a personal trainer in in the city. I'm trying to start up uh, kind of my own my own new business concept in the fitness industry that I think is pretty exciting and hopefully comes to life and I can talk about it a little bit more in the future. But uh, you know I also do uh, a lot of education and seminars. I've written a couple of books. I've written Mass and Mass Two, um, and I'm I'm currently kind of uh, teaching a a seminar called Rethinking the Big Patterns that is available on my website, which is drpatdavidson.com. Um, you know, it's that one's a two-day seminar that uh, that covers a lot of my, you know, it, it covers my like really, what i how I would say about that thing is that I think that what's been missing is a systematic approach to understanding fundamentals of biomechanics. And beyond that, like how to uh, create a a progressive system of how to introduce the right biomechanics in what order, in what level, how does it fit between all the different exercises that exist in fitness? How do we categorize all the different exercises? Um, You know, I I think that the title of it, Rethinking the Big Patterns, um, I think about good strength and conditioning, and and it typically involves people categorizing things pretty well. And when I think about strength training, you know, we've kind of categorized things as like hip dominant, knee dominant, horizontal push-pull, vertical push-pull, core, anti-extension, anti-rotation, triple extension power, and loaded carries. I think that that's sort of like what we've all kind of agreed upon is like, this is training, so to speak. And I, I fit exercises into those categories and I make sure I have enough volume and intensity to improve fitness over time in a progressive manner. And rethinking the big patterns is essentially zooming out even further and saying that exercises belong into one of three stances and that in those stances, you can do exercises that are primarily dominated by one of three planes, frontal, transverse, and sagittal, and that those exercises are performed at various levels of force, velocity, duration. And, uh, and once you create a box for all of those variables, you can now plug in a specific exercise that makes sense for fitting into that specific category. And now what's left is we have to figure out for each kind of athlete or general population person, how much fitness, how much volume and intensity does that person need for activities that fit that category so that we can optimize their life, optimize their performance, optimize their health. Um, And so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that particular project. I'm actually hopefully going to be coming out and doing one of those in San Francisco, uh, probably at some point in the fall. So, you know, once that gets kind of finalized, I'll definitely let you know about it. And, um, you know, just, just, uh, doing various other talks. I've got one set up for, for, uh, PRI. Uh, I'm speaking at their interdisciplinary integration conference in April. Um, I'm speaking at Mike ran place in Connecticut in May. Um, and I'm speaking at the New York City Hype Gym Foundations of Fitness uh, series of seminars, and the first one of those is going to be in May as well, and that'll feature myself, Stu McGill, and Joel Jameson. So, a bunch of stuff coming up. Pretty pretty excited about all of those different projects, and um, you know, I, I just like that it's an opportunity to to meet other people in our industry, such as yourself. And uh, there's so many awesome people all over the world, all over our country that, like, I just like people in fitness, generally speaking. I like spending time with those people, learning from them, hanging out, training, and sharing what I've got with them. So uh, I feel like I'm living the dream right now.
1: Well, I, I love it, Pat. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into some of those topics and ideas today. So we'll get on to the questions here. And uh, first, I guess the basic question, I think something that's, that's pretty common and apparent to everybody is, uh, what are the... Uh, implications of squatting the the typical butt back chest out mentality so or, or benching with an arch so why why is this something that could have negative repercussions uh or or maybe for some people not be that bad like what are um can you break that down for us
0: sure so i you know i i think that there's a million ways that you can do any kind of movement and um they're just strategies you know what i mean like uh i think people get bent out of shape like They see somebody doing a a loaded exercise in an extreme position, uh, such as like being in a a flex position or a hyperextended position, and it's kind of like the overreactive brain thinks that the world is going to end, and it's probably going to be okay uh, as long – like you can't really hurt yourself until you've gotten like really, really strong or trained with so much volume that you've put yourself in a position to hurt yourself with training, Um, but I, I would say that, that overall, we all have possible strategies that we can utilize to execute movements. And generally speaking, I think that the strategies I try to coach people with is that I'm trying to get them to, you know, hold their body in certain positions, stabilize certain structures and create movement with more of a muscular strategy and less of a joint strategy, you know, from like a simple perspective, I would say that like if you're feeling exercises primarily in joints rather than in muscles, it's probably a strategy that has left less uh, potential time that you can train it. You know, like your ability to accumulate volume with that strategy is probably slightly less. You're probably going to find yourself existing in, in, in pain syndromes, uh, down the line, it's more likely that you'll end up there. I think that the the cost of performing loaded exercises is probably slightly greater if you're using a you know a a bone on bone impingement strategy as opposed to muscles really holding you in place and moving you through through uh, ranges of motion. so uh, but but again, I, I think that like um, it's it's one of those things that we we don't necessarily have to overreact to. Uh, to the degree that we will you know it's 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 similar again like I'm kind of an east coast guy and I've, I've talked about this before in other places but like uh, you know Mike Boyle's always been a huge influence on my thought process and he's always talked about the pendulum of of uh, people learning something new and then overreacting to that thing uh, and then we will underreact at some point but that pendulum is always going to swing back and forth but uh, I, I would say that overall it's it's a strategy based question and answer and that I'm usually trying to teach more muscular strategies to people so that they can both find and feel certain muscles as well as rely on those muscles to be able to, uh, really both hold structures and move other structures.
1: Yeah, sure thing. I, I totally agree with the pendulum thing. I mean, I've, I haven't been in the industry that terribly long compared to a lot of coaches, but I think maybe in, in my time, decade or so, I'm starting to see at least half of the pendulum, and maybe in my next decade, I'll, I'll see some start to see some things swing back, and so I'm excited for that, I guess, in a way, like, just to kind of uh, feel like I have some wisdom under me, and I, I like, um I really do like what you said, like, the muscular strategy versus the impinging strategies, and it, could you give a few examples of that, like, someone who's squatting, like... What's, uh, what are some impinging strategies you're looking for and how might you correct that, or, or a bench press or a common movement?
0: Sure. And, you know, just to, I would say that there's probably one other facet to the, to the answer that I want to give on this, this question of like, what are my thoughts on this sort of classical chest up, butt back, shoulders back and down position that you see, uh, a lot of competitive lifters in and basically the, the cue that you heard every strength coach from like 1992, up to about 2010 uh giving for almost every exercise ever performed in a weight room i would say that that uh you know part of the answer is what i already talked about in regards to either an impingement uh kind of bones coming together sort of strategy versus a muscular strategy and the other the other piece of that puzzle is is a respiration management um answer so i I would just say simply that um You know, what are the outcomes uh, or or what are the common impingement strategies? Like uh, impingement, I think, first of all, you have to define what impingement is, and it's just simply one one bone moving closer to another bone, like two bones coming together. So if I go with this big arch classical kind of chest up, butt back position for my big lifts, the impingement that's taking place is between the posterior aspects of the vertebrae uh, I'm, I'm just simply moving those structures towards each other with adjacent vertebrae. Um, so, you know, w- like once I do that, I tend to also see the, really the opposite of impingement on the front side of the body in terms of the, the space between the, the anterior inlet of the, of the ilium bone or the pelvis and the anterior ribs, like those structures are going to move farther away from each other and they're ultimately going to become more unstable Uh, you know, when bones move away from each other, we create instability. When bones move towards each other, we create impingement. Uh, so it's, it's all a case of where do I want to be unstable and where do I want to create impingement? And, uh, I would say that for exercises like a squat, a bench press and a deadlift, it kind of depends on who I am. And, uh, and, and ultimately by who I am, I mean, Some people are competitive power lifters and other people are lifting weights for other kinds of outcomes. So if I'm a competitive power lifter, in particular in an exercise like the bench press, I would probably want to create an impingement strategy in the vertebrae and in the scapula because I'm going to decrease the amount of range of motion that I have to move the barbell through the zone with. Uh, If I'm an athlete that's lifting weights to uh, increase hypertrophy or to increase some aspect of like uh, force production at certain velocity ranges. I, I probably want to use uh, more of an impingement strategy on the front side of the body uh, and an instability strategy on the back side of the body uh, because I'll probably be able to manage respiration uh, through the pumping actions of a respiratory and pelvic diaphragm to a greater degree with with that other strategy that would just simply be bringing my anterior ribs down, back, and in, which would create a zone of of, uh, apposition for my respiratory diaphragm. If I can lift weights, get strong, and add muscle while still being able to manage respiration and utilize the diaphragm for inhalation, I'm probably uh, decreasing deleterious physical cost while building fitness. I think that's probably the right the right ultimate answer, like summarized as succinctly as possible. You're
1: listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I like that. I sometimes I think about too like what kind of that, that idea of be an athlete and you're getting to the point of diminishing returns in a lift and and seeing this too and I forget who wrote this Olympic weightlifting book, but it was talking about the point where even a uh, Where an Olympic weightlifter uh, whose deadlift was actually too high uh, could actually negatively impact uh, their Olympic pull because of different morphological changes that come with having a really, really, really good deadlift or things like that. And so, yeah, it, for it, sure. Yeah. It, it, what you said there actually was really interesting. It made sense to me how to be really good at a particular barbell movement. Uh, if that's your, you're starting to really funnel into that. Your body does make those changes, or at least your nervous system and how you manage in impingement, uh, and then uh, opening up on the other side. I, I never thought about it that way, and that's really interesting to me.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's this whole like concept. There's so many sacred cows that need to get killed in fitness, but uh, you know this this idea of the definitions of stability versus instability, or what we're actually tr- desiring um, in regards to, to making people more or less stable. And, and it's kind of like I, the word instability has gotten a bum rap, but a lot of people need to become more unstable. You know, they need to learn how to allow bony structures to move away from each other. And, um, and you know, that's a, that's a big element. I know you, you wanted to talk about certain uh, aspects of PRI thought, but the, the whole course of impingement and instability, I and I, is is sort of getting to this point of, you know, we tend to be as a species more, un- we, we, we're unstable on the left side of our bodies, and we're too stable on the right side of our body. And we need to try to create more specific kinds of impingement on the left side. And we need to become more unstable on the right side of our body. And, you know, when you're thinking about that, it's literally like, what do I mean by impingement i mean two bones coming closer to each other and what am i thinking about with that i'm thinking about the anterior ribs on the left side moving downwards towards the ilium bone on the left side i'm thinking about that anterior aspect of the top of the ilium bone moving upwards and backwards you know like anterior ribs down back and in ilium bone in the front up and back and if i do that i'm i'm technically impinging the two big proximal major bony structures of my axial skeleton on the left side of my body and what I want to do on the right side of my body is be able to create more separation between the anterior uh, superior part of my ilium bone and my anterior rib cage uh, so it's it's a totally different way of thinking about things but it's it, I think it's a, a more accurate model that actually leads to more predictable positive outcomes for people from, like, a, a movement variability perspective as well as a, a sensory motor competency perspective.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It is it's interesting thinking about that too, um, and how you framed it there too. Left side, right side, uh, almost looking at the like what we look. We're just talking about squats, but now on the frontal plane, and and yeah, when you understand that through PRI, all of a sudden. Uh, when someone's shifting their hips and squats, it just cause completely looking at it a different way than say I would have five years ago where I would have just said, Hey, stop, you know, just stop doing that. Just start going the other way, uh, and not Mm -hmm. thinking about the space and and the pressure on the different sides of the the rib cage and why that's, why that's happening. So I think that's another good way of looking at it. Following up too, and and kind of on the same lines of squat, uh, one of the things I really was interested in talking with you and getting your thoughts on and, and a little expansion of knowledge was, uh, the ideas of squatting and internally rotating the femurs. And so kind of like people seeing that little click into the knees at, at some point in the squat, uh, typically on that reversal. Uh, why why might that not be a bad thing? And when is it a bad thing? And how should we look at uh, the idea of knees in uh, when someone's performing a squat?
0: Sure. So, I mean, I think that, the again, it's kind of these classical things that we've been coached in for how to squat properly is chest up, butt back, shoulders back and down, uh, spread the floor with the feet, push the knees out. That's, that's you know, if you want, like, the, the beginner's guide to how to coach the squat properly on practically every level taught to you by practically every person in both the physical therapy and performance-based industries, there you go. That's kind of it. And, again, it's sort of like – You know, any time that everybody agrees on something that's that simple, it is probably either unappreciated in terms of how complicated it is or everybody's like wrong on some level. Uh, And, you know, it's I just don't think people look into things deeply enough. Like they get very uncomfortable thinking about things that challenge their intuitive, quick thinking beliefs. And, um, you know, I, I like to just get as uncomfortable as I possibly can and stay there as long as possible. Uh, and if I'm wrong I'm wrong but at least I've thought about things and put forward a potential new way to do things but uh, you know I, I just look at I, the article that I wrote that's that's on rebel performance that's called uh, knees in for the win regarding the squat it, it's basically saying that um, you know when I'm I, I'm comparing the squat motion of the like in terms of the femur mechanics the really like lumbar, pelvic, femoral actions of the squat to the lumbar, femoral, the lumbar, pelvic, femoral actions of the gait cycle. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that squatting is gait and that gait is squatting. Uh, squatting is squatting and gait is gait. But I think that there are some commonalities between the behavior of the femur and the pelvis during the two motions. And, and where, where I'm making that comparison is during the absorption of force phase and the propulsion force phases of the two mo- of the two motions so when i'm absorbing force in gait i typically have a triad of motion that's going to be femoral flexion abduction and external rotation and when i'm propelling my body forward during late stance and terminal stance components of gait I'm using the opposite triad of motion. I'm using extension, internal rotation, and adduction to be able to drive my body forward. And, you know, it's it's like, it's like sort of obvious when you can watch walking, like uh, when I land on my left foot during early stance, like I have to hit my heel, and I'm gonna be on the outside part of my heel, my knee is going to be out, uh, you know, I'm, so I have to be flexed. I have to be externally rotated. I have to be abducted. Like there's no other way to really do it. And then to finish, it's the opposite. Like my, my body kind of relies on opposition to be able to create actual movement. Like I have potential energy of being in, in one extreme. And then I utilize that to create kinetic energy by going kind of downhill in the opposite direction. So with the squat, I think it's fairly similar and uh, I also just think about like looking at other animals, like more primitive animals, like a frog is a really easy animal to be able to look at and see how it propels itself forward in space. Like frogs utilize like kind of jumping. And even when they're swimming, they're sort of squatting, you know, they're, they're, they're like frogs basically squat their way through life. And when a frog is in quote unquote, the bottom of a squat, or in the preparatory phase before it propels itself through phase, through, through, through space, a frog's femurs are essentially uh, flexed, abducted, and ER'd. And then when it propels itself forward, it's going to extend, adduct, and internally rotate. Uh, so it's it's kind of like the the big picture point of the article I wrote on squatting is that when you are descending in a squat, you're utilizing the same strategy Of femoral flexion external rotation and abduction and when you are rising from a squat you are extending your femur you are adducting your femur and you are internally rotating your femur Uh, now where people are going to get confused is they think that automatically means that the knees are actually going to end up inside the feet at some point during the squat Uh, and and I would say that they could end up inside the feet or they might not end up inside the feet. If they end up inside the feet, it might be a, it might be fine. It also might be a problem. If they don't end up inside the feet, that might be fine, and it might be a problem. Uh, so let's kind of analyze the the, the, the perspective of feet, or, or knees not ending up inside the feet uh, first. So, you know, it, like I can even if my knees never end up being inside my feet at any point during my squat, I'm still utilizing extension, adduction, and internal rotation forces to be able to bring myself back up to the top from the bottom of the squat. Uh, It's just all relative, okay? Uh, Let's say I put somebody on a, a PT table and I test them and I discover that this person's femur cannot adduct it cannot internally rotate all right that person will still be utilizing adduction and internal rotation forces to be able to bring themselves back up to the top of the squat what they'll simply do is during the descent of the squat they'll just they'll they'll go to the extremes of abduction and external rotation they'll spread the floor and they'll push their knees out and then, relative to the extreme of at the bottom of their squat, their knees were incredibly abducted and their femurs were incredibly externally rotated, they will rise back up and relatively adduct and IR. They might just come back to a quote unquote position of neutral at some point as they're rising back up. But compared to the extreme endpoint, of the severity of abduction and ER that they got into at some point in the descent, they relatively did the opposite motions. Now compare that with someone that I put on a treatment table who actually can internally rotate their femur and can adduct their femur. If that person is ascending in the squat and their knees are coming inside their feet, they're relying on the same motions. They're still relying on adduction, internal rotation, and extension of their femur to rise to the top of the squat. They just actually, anatomically speaking, can fully adduct and internally rotate. And and that's fine. Like that's that's kind of what you, you probably should be able to do as a human being. Now, the question and where people are gonna freak out is that's valgus. And the answer to that is no, it is not valgus. Valgus is not adduction adduction is not valgus Valgus is when there is torque and twist and difference between the actions of the femur and the tibia Okay, if I see a femur that is internally rotating and moving towards midline and I see a tibia that is externally Rotating and staying on the outer edge now I have a separation and a difference between the actions of those two bones And that's where problems arise, like that's where I'm going to be putting torque, twist and strain on tendons. And that can be a huge problem. And, you know, in the article that I wrote, there's a pretty obvious picture uh, of a of a guy like you'll typically see this more on the right leg with externally rotated uh, tibias that just have tremendous tibial torsion. And uh, and then a femur that's like kind of going into internal rotation. Uh, To a higher degree. And you just, you know it when you see it because those two bones are going in different directions. And it's like when knees are coming in, but the same behavior is taking place at the tibia and at the femur, that is not valgus. That's just simply IR and adduction. So I think that's where we have to really improve ourselves. Uh, As a field is to actually be more accurate about our definitions know what those definitions are and then be able to know what you're seeing when it's taking place in front of you because not all knees crashing in towards midline is a problem not all knees crashing in towards midline is good either though you just have to be able to differentiate between valgus and adduction internal rotation
1: you listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah the, what you just said there uh yeah valgus not equaling um adduction i was i was kind of writing a few notes down and i was like that was like such a huge one um yeah, as you were talking there and i think too, just look bringing it back to the beginning like talking about the basic alternation in gait like um like you have to actually rotate to absorb but then you have to internally rotate and i At first, that was, like, a little confusing, like, to wrap my head around. But then I think about, like, the – usually, like, the elderly people sometimes you'll see walking down the street and they can't internally rotate and their toes, like, stay out the whole time. You would see that and you're like, okay, obviously, this isn't the normal gait cycle. But it's it's funny to think, like, that we – like saying, you know, jam your knees out as squatting as hard as you can would almost be like telling someone to walk like that or jog like that. You know, like it wouldn't it wouldn't work very well from a performance perspective. And when we slow nope. things down in the weight room, you know, it's like okay, I'm working hard. Like something good must be happening, right? So uh, I that article is a game changer for me, and especially what you just said there, the valgus not equaling adduction. I think that's has so many uh, just great uh, ideas on on basically not coaching athleticism out of athletes and, and, and uh, letting knowing when to leave their um, propulsion mechanisms stay intact.
0: You know, there's a lot of us out there that are turning ourselves into chimpanzees. And if you look at a chimpanzee trying to walk on, in an upright position on its, on its back legs, chimpanzees, um, they kind of look like power lifters. All right? They are on the outside edges of their feet. Their femurs are always flexed to a certain degree. They're always externally rotated and abducted. And when they try to walk forward, they kind of stagger back and forth like a penguin or like a drunk. They don't have the ability to keep the center of mass of their thorax uh, really inside their base of support, inside their feet, while they're trying to move forward. Uh, Chimpanzees just simply utilize like, uh, they, they don't have like an authentic frontal plane. They just, they just kind of rock back and forth and and like ultimately uh the difference between a chimpanzee's gait in upright position versus a human's gait in upright position is that the shape of the pelvis in a in a human is different than a chimpanzee. A, a chimpanzee's ilium bones are, you know, they they are spread apart at the top. Uh they're coming towards each other at the bottom. So the the inlet of their pelvis is abducted. The outlet of their pelvis is adducted. Uh, like, if you think about a, a human being's ilium bones, like the you know, they, they kind of face side to side and inward. You know, the, the inside of the ilium bones face towards each other, they face towards the the inside of the body. A chimpanzee's ilium bones are turned outward so that the insides of their ilium bones are facing forward. And the backside of their ilium bones are facing backwards. Okay, uh, when a, when a, when the ilium bones uh, in a human being are facing towards each other, that is what allows us to actually have a frontal plane and to allow us to move forward and gait without swaying side to side like a penguin or like the way that a chimp would would move. It, you know, I, I think we've all kind of seen that, that at some point, like the way that a chimp tries to move on its back legs but it's it's kind of like we we're just simply utilizing chimpanzee like strategies to teach people to squat in these in these you know spread the floor knees out chest up shoulders back and down strategies like we're turning ourselves back into knuckle walkers with ilium bones that are you know basically in a pec position if you really want to know what a pec pelvis is Just look at chimpanzee gait mechanics. It's the same thing. Uh, Chimpanzee spines are straighter than human spines. They don't have an S-shaped curve. They're just long, gradually sloping curves. A chimpanzee's head exists out in front of its pelvis. It puts its hands down to create base of support. A chimpanzee is literally chest up, butt back, shoulders back and down, spread the floor, spread the knees. That's, That's what we... And look, like it's not that surprising that a lot of strong people have figured out that's the right way to squat for them because those people do not have the ability to adduct and internally rotate their femurs. So if I can't adduct and internally rotate my femurs, I'll just go further into abduction and external rotation so that I can relatively adduct and internally rotate to come back to the top. Uh, but it's, it just takes a little bit more time to be able to see it all the way through as compared to this very simplistic, everyone should spread the floor, everyone should spread the knees, uh, kind of mantra that we've all become so accustomed to in our field.
1: Yeah, I, I love it. I'm going to have to put a bunch of uh, videos of animals in the show notes. I, I, w- I was saying too, I was going to have to put, um, or I was thinking, I would definitely have to put a picture. Of you You said you know it when you see it, when someone is squatting that way. I think those of us who have been coaching for a while definitely do, um, but it, or when someone is is um is is really in, <clears throat> in valgus and not not adduction, or, or they have that twisting. But I, when you were talking about the chimpanzee and the way their femurs are rotated, like at they how their gait cycle suffers, but they would probably be great squatters. It made me think someone, everyone shows me like every dunk or jump video that's ever been out there. Someone sends me at some point, <laughs> and uh there was some, one of like a tim- chimpanzee dunking a basketball, and I could not believe how high that thing jumped, like you know, bilaterally. Yeah. And it was like, it hit a deep squat and i seriously got like probably four feet up off the ground. No problem. But it kind of, to me also makes me think a little bit about some of the differences in the basic skills too. Like, and, uh, and jumping too, I, that was one of the things that first got me thinking. And I drew a lot of context in in my own mind with the article you wrote, cause I, when I would always watch myself do plyometrics, I was worse than anybody at this, but my knees would spin so they were probably within an inch of each other when i do hurdle hops or anything like that and I would sit think oh man I'm going to blow my knees out this is being but I was a you know I was a 7 foot high jumper I could jump very high very well never really had substantial knee issues and and then yep. one day it struck me like uh I mean I used to think it was just getting the big toe but now it's just like oh yeah I was just uh stretching the glute like that's just internal rotation stretching the glute so I can unload and and ever since I, I, that kind of hit me, it's like, whoa. like. <laughs> and so you you mentioning, um, you just mentioned the squat and then the chimpanzee and some of the different skills that, that really does bring a lot of things together.
0: Yeah, like I'm fine with knees coming in as long as on a table you show me that your femurs actually adduct and internally rotate because you can do it. It's that like when people on a table can't adduct and, or can't internally rotate and now all of a sudden... I see knees coming in towards each other, where it's like, well, it has to be valgus, you know. It has to be that you know I've got twist and torque where I shouldn't, and that ligaments and tendons and other passive structures are getting stretched out and compromised and put in a dangerous spot. It's again, it's sort of impingement uh, where I want a more muscular strategy. Um, but if if you're if you can IR, if you can adduct, go ahead and IR and adduct. It's it's the other people that are doing pseudo or phony adduction in IR that's really valgus that are the problems. But, you know, it's like we, we've we just we've we've tried to put everybody in the same bucket because we get so risk averse and fear, fear based with the injuries that do happen. And and then we we lose the ability to differentiate because I, I think I think quite honestly, like either people don't understand it or they become just so conditioned to fear of the ramifications of when things do go wrong with high profile expensive athletes
1: yeah I couldn't agree more yeah the the what it takes to actually change the the mentality of an industry or a group of people I think yeah especially when high profile athletes are on the line is it definitely is a a, a point of contention or a really something that probably takes a, a real innate understanding uh, to kind of Get through. I was I was going to ask you too. You mentioned uh, testing people on the table to to see. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are probably thinking, okay, I, I know a few athletes who are you know do, you have some of these traits you've been talking about. Uh, what are some of the tests that you will do when you get them up on the table to test for that uh, the, the ability to internally rotate and adduct?
0: So I mean, you got like the Obers, the modified Obers test, or what PRI calls the adduction drop test. Um, that that tells you whether or not someone can adduct. And then for IR, like you can do supine, um, you know, bring the femur to to flexion at 90 degrees, and see whether it can internally rotate and externally rotate from that position. You can have someone sit on the edge of the table and and just, you know, test them in IR and ER. Uh, all all pretty standard stuff, and we're just talking about like uh, with IR and ER, just just goni- goniometric, standard table tests of of uh, femoral rotation capabilities.
1: Awesome. Yeah. That's, that keeps it pretty simple too. I think a lot of people are even outside of PRI, those are pretty standard, uh, standard tests and, and I'll, I'll make sure I try to throw those Well, shoot. My show notes is gradually growing there where it could be like 10 things. So, um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll yeah, pop. it's,
0: it's just kind of like, I mean, I like, I, I love PRI, but I'm not married to PRI. I just think like it's a, it's a system I've learned a tremendous amount through both in terms of like objective testing uh, intervention, retest strategy, uh, and also just like kind of appreciating like what I'm probably seeing from a, a strategy standpoint of how people are getting through life. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I think that like you can't escape from standardized anatomy and kinesiology textbooks. And, um, and you also just can't escape from empirical, peer-reviewed research on on all the various things that we do so so it's just it's it's just like a a good commercial model that has has given me the really like a lot of tools to to become a better professional and also pointed me in a lot of really interesting directions in terms of uh factors that that are really powerful in in like and what causes people to move the way that they do, ranging from emotional factors to neurotransmitter factors to, you know, music to this, that and the other thing.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's definitely a, having new lenses in the way you view human movement is just it's it makes the, uh, what we do so much fun. Uh, and, yeah. and so many having more things to look at. I, I love it. I, I thought you were talking about the gate cycle too and squatting. Uh, I've heard you talk about the same thing and setting up a deadlift. So I'd like to mm-hmm. s- switch gears just a little bit to that. And so specifically, how are you setting up a, getli- a, a deadlift and what are, what are some things you're looking for in relation to kind of what we just discussed?
0: So, you know, I, I just sort of, um, you know, you know, I think that it's always hard to ever like, give a, a really good answer in a podcast because time is, is a limited factor. And I also don't have the ability to like physically be in front of people with a person that I can coach and demonstrate things and, and all that sort of jazz with. So I, you know, I, I do have a, um, a seminar available on, um, on the website that I've got that, that kind of, it it really covers my, my primary thoughts on like, uh, coaching and and getting people to to perform movements in in various stances and planes ranging from warm up to you know speed agility up to strength and power and aerobic conditioning and and um you know one of the things that I do in in that in the rethinking the big pattern seminar is I try to categorize exercises as best I possibly can And, um, and the categories that I generally use are, are that exercises belong to one of three primary stances where people can be in a bilateral symmetrical stance. They can be in an asymmetrical staggered front back stance, and they can be in an asymmetrical staggered lateral stance. Uh, and I would say that when I'm thinking about a deadlift, it lives in the category of bilateral symmetrical stance. And then, uh, all exercises and all stances can belong to one of three primary cardinal planes of movement, sagittal, frontal, and transverse. And a deadlift is a bilateral symmetrical sagittal plane activity. And, um, and then exercises of all stances and all planes can belong to uh, a, a category on the spectrum of, of velocity, force, and duration. And I would say that, that there's exercises that are uh, low force, low velocity, low duration, and I would call those things warm-up. There are exercises that are uh, low force, high velocity, low duration, and I would call those things speed, agility, plyometrics, and med balls. There are exercises that belong to um, high force, high velocity, low duration, and I would call those exercises Olympic-style lifts, Stone loading and other triple extension power type activities. There are exercises that I would say are high force, low velocity, low duration. And I would say that those are your classical squatting, deadlifting, pressing, pulling movements. I would say that there are exercises that belong to moderate force, moderate velocity, moderate duration. And I would call those things assistance exercises. And then there are exercises that I would say are low force, low velocity long duration, and I would say that those are generally your aerobic or glycolytic type conditioning uh, exercises. So a deadlift is a bilateral symmetrical stance, sagittal plane, high force, low velocity, low duration activity. And based on that classification, I would coach that exercise in a very specific way in terms of what I want to see from the athlete and what I want the athlete to feel. Uh, so when it comes to sagittal plane, uh, what I want to see is that, the re- that there's a, a visible relationship between the top of the skull and the bottom of the pelvic floor, and that I generally want them to be stacked on top of each other. And I want to see that the person is capable of retracting their ribcage without affecting the relationship of the stack of the skull over the pelvic floor. Um, And I want that person to tell me that they can feel their heels, they can feel their hamstrings, and they can feel their abs while they're doing a sagittal plane bilateral symmetrical stance activity. Now, when it comes to the amount of force that they're creating, and in the deadlift it's a tremendously high force activity, I don't need them to be as sensorily aware as I would need them to be if they were doing a warm-up activity uh, or, or some other drill that was a little less forceful uh, on their on the whole system as, as a whole. Uh, so I want them to be able to, to not feel the exercise exclusively in their back and their neck. I want it to be one that's a little bit more hamstrings and abs- but it doesn't need to be the, the highest level of sensory awareness. But I, I generally, in terms of the feet, I want that person to solidly have their weight on their heels, and there should be some level of feeling the big toe on the ground as well. Uh, and I want that person to become a pusher rather than a puller. I want them to push the earth rather than try to pull the bar. I want their hands to be kind of like hooks, Um I, you know, to be able to retract the rib cage in space without seeing the, the, the relationship of the skull and the pelvic floor changing, I want them to grab the bar and reach and feel like they're pushing their back away from the bar. Uh, So I, I would just simply say that from a motor perspective, from a coaching eye perspective, the keys that I'm looking for is that skull and pelvis are lined up that the person is capable of creating a good reach, which retracts their ribcage, uh, and that it looks like their weight is on their heels. And I want the athlete to tell me, hey, coach, like I really felt that, like I was pushing the ground with my heels, and I had my big toes anchored down. Uh, and, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really feel that too much in my back, and uh, I didn't notice my neck at all.
1: You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Uh, yeah, one thing I I was curious about. You mentioned line and I've heard this before and actually this is something that I've I I've, I've never probably made a solid decision on myself. I'm interested in your take. Uh but in terms of like lining up the the head over the pelvic floor or the idea of um doing a deadlift with the like the eyes basically look, kind of looking like down and forward and the spine is in a, in a straight line versus the eyes looking ahead, like kind of an Olympic lift, what's, um, Mm -hmm. what is, what are some thoughts and ideas there on, on those differences?
0: So I'd say that like, when it comes to the sagittal plane, uh, I don't really like this term neutral spine. I just think it's a trash term. Um, if I was going to define what a neutral spine is, it's one that, that has 30 degrees of lumbar lordosis and 30 degrees of cervical lordosis. And I don't know about anybody else, but I don't have an X-ray machine handy when I've got athletes in a deadlift. Like, I, I don't know where their spine actually is in space. Uh, so I, I think that the best case I can do is I can use these kind of sensory motor competency checklists as a proxy to that. Um, and, you know, in terms of, of eye position or, or, or where you're looking – during these things, like, I am not a pack-the-neck coach, you know. I, I think that, that I'm trying to manage the airway uh, while people are doing exercises. And, and I don't know about you, but I've taken CPR courses, and nobody's ever had me open the airway by packing the dummy's neck. <laughs> I, generally, I generally do the opposite, you know. I generally am trying to create more lordosis in the cervical spine so that I can actually open the airway uh to be able to to permit breathing to take place. So I I coach people to I try I'm trying to promote a certain degree of lordosis in um in the people that I'm working with so that they can still potentially breathe during an activity such as a deadlift or a push-up or other other kinds of bilateral stance uh sagittal activities that people will oftentimes Kind of choke off their airway while they're doing, um, and and I just I, I I hear more people complain about shoulder problems when they're they're moving their chin down and back as opposed to allowing their chin to go up and forward a little bit. It's to me, it's the relationship of the top of the skull and the bottom of the pelvic floor uh, that that really matters, and I just see more often than not that the skull being forward is 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 a, is generally the problem, you know, I think that that as a field we, we are, are fairly clueless about kyphosis in the thoracic spine And that a lot of people think they're seeing kyphosis when in reality, they're actually just seeing a forward skull and um, and that forward skull is creating a situation that is flattening out the cervical spine and causing that cervical spine to lose lose the lordosis it desperately needs and once it loses that lordosis, it's going to simply just be, um, you know, impinging the airway and closing off the ability to to have airflow take place.
1: Yeah, that probably really, really messes with the dynamics of things. I I like the CPR episode or the CPR anecdote there. I because I'm like, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, what does? Yeah, so- it's
0: it's crazy. You look at MRI stuff and you see people like tilting the the chin up and down. And um, you can literally just see the, the airway open and close. And it's like, uh, geez, what are we doing? Like, you know, I think that like I it's funny, like with the push up, for instance, like everybody that's coached a push up has seen people that project their head forward at the ground as their first movement. It almost looks like they're, they're like an inverted rooster or something like that. Yes. <laughs> and um, and it's like, you know, everybody tries to coach that in a certain way. And it's like that person that's doing that rooster push up. Is literally opening their airway so that they can breathe in the position you've put them in and now your coaching has taken their ability to breathe away from them because you've simply closed off their airway I mean like do you think that their organism isn't figuring out a way to manage the most important elements of being alive in that position like it's their organism is going to take care of the most crucial factors you as the coach can potentially give them a new strategy but you have to be very respectful of the intelligence of that organism's ability to survive at the most economical uh, methodology possible to it.
1: Yeah, that that makes good sense. I, it makes me think of uh, teams I've had count count off reps doing various exercises: squats, push ups, plate sit ups, uh, as part of their warm up. And some of the athletes are like, "I I have a hard time counting when I'm in this position," or it it makes me yep. like it's probably like the easiest way to, to, to kind of get to the heart of uh, someone's pattern is have them talk or count while they're trying to do something.
0: Totally. You know, I I see a big time parallel between people that struggle with bent over rows and people that can't hip hinge very well. And, um, and, you know, it's like they can't breathe when they're in a bent over row, like at all, because they're just kind of buried in a hinge. And, um, you know, we're always trying to, give them these standard strength coach cues of like, Oh, I'm going to tie a rope around your waist and I'm going to pull you back. And, uh, and that's going to teach you how to hinge better or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like we, we, again, like, like, I think the the hinge position is one, like I, I don't coach people on day one. I just make them do bent over rows and I see if they can talk to me. And if they can't, I'm like, Oh, this person just can't breathe in a hinge. So, you know, like, am I going to be able to coach them through that? Well, maybe over time, but I have to make them first aware of the fact that they can't breathe in this position. Um, And then I'm I'm probably going to cue them to hinge backwards, not even with their hips. I I really cue people to hinge with their ribs. Like I, I put my hands right on their ribs and I'm directing their ribs down and back towards their hips and exhaling. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, that person's hips are translating backwards through space. And, um, you know, I I think they're unstable on the anterior aspect of their axial skeleton. And I'm actually increasing their stability uh, through an anterior axial impingement strategy. So it's you know it's just different ways of of kind of looking at the same stuff that we've all been looking at for a long time and maybe finding something that's been sitting there all along that's really like low hanging fruit that gives you what you want that maybe appeared to to at first be like uh counter to your initially held beliefs.
1: Yeah, totally. That's like another layer right there. I think uh, you know the typical hinge coaching that I've always done is been like hands on the hips, use a dowel rod on your back, like sensory through that. But never had thought about the ribs and breathing and how that impacts. And then probably you could translate that too to what they look like when they get down and do a push-up and what their head and neck are doing and ribs are doing. and It would be more universal uh, changes, totally. I feel like, getting from They're,
0: there. They are shooting their head forward in space because their ribs – aren't in the right position to be able to give their diaphragm a chance to inhale air for them. So by putting their head forward in space, they're giving themselves an opportunity to be inhalers via mouth breathing strategy and neck strategy and back strategy. Uh, and that's all they got left. So if you take that away from them now, they just can't even do anything like they, they might be, they might move their body through space with, with a, a pushup, but they're, they're in trouble. They're like on their last legs here. And they're probably going to be the kind of person that fatigues quickly in exercise. You know, like they might be strong, but they might get tired and have a hard time recovering.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I think that's an awesome way of seeing those relationships. Uh, I, quickly, I want to get to the next question I wanted to ask you. So what does, uh, what does having a lined up uh, head or cranium over the pelvis look like then when you're running someone through a deadlift or hinge?
0: You know, I mean, obviously, as the person hinges, like you're going to see, like if I'm looking at them from the side, that their their head is probably going to be in front of their feet and their butt's probably going to be behind their feet. But I want to still be able to, like, draw a straight line between the bottom of their pelvic floor and the top of their their skull, the middle of both structures. So it's just relative to, you know, how they're changing a push up. You know, the person is is parallel with the ground in standing upright. They're perpendicular with the ground. But I I generally want to see that I could draw a straight line between top of the skull and bottom of the pelvic floor. Um, and, and I, I, like I said, also, I want to be able to see that that relationship does not change while they're able to retract their rib cage, which I think is the critical element.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that throwing in there about the, the rib cage as well. And, and, uh, because I, I think too a lot of times we put athletes in a very certain position, but then we say now breathe and now or now move <laughs> and now do something, and they're gonna fall out of it because of their need to to breathe and survive and move the ribs. And uh, yeah,
0: they'll breathe. It's just what strategy. You know, we're kind of coming back to that same topic over and over. What strategy you're using to breathe? Like I would love you to be able to create a a, a zone of acquisition and be able to breathe with the inhalation dri- being driven from. Movement of the the diaphragm, but if I if I put you in a place where I have your ribs in uh, a position where they're they're forward up and in external rotation, you're you're just not in a place where the the diaphragm can really do its job as a muscle of inhalation. So you're you're left. You have other options. Like hey, I've got scalenes. Thank God. I've got uh, spinal erectors. Thank God. I've got suboccipital muscles. I've got calves. I've got I've got hip flexors. They can all pull air in and, um, and they will, if they have to, but now you've got, you know, monster cabs and monster SCMs and scalenes and, and, uh, and your hip flexors love to take over for every position that you could possibly be in. And it's always like, you know, why, 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 why? And it's because they have to, they're just trying to keep you alive.
1: Yeah. I I love it. I was going to, uh, ask you so that, the next question I had, uh, I think is probably related to that. I've seen at first I saw it was Cody Plofker doing a K-Box squat with a physio ball kind of in his belly and, and, and his spine inflection. And then I saw uh, you not too long afterwards, uh, you had a, it looked like a Dynamax med ball uh, kind of in, in the front of your ribs, uh, kind of curving your spine around it, doing a, a hinging movement on the cable machine. Uh, could you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, what's the uh, emphasis of that? What is that trying to help and correct? And sure. uh, how's that work?
0: So it's kind of a loaded functional squat for PRI. Um, so, so what I'm trying to do in this in that position is it's it's um, you know to, to to really describe it like I'll like I, I like it with the med ball because I want you to really be able to get your arms around it. I'm I'm just creating a reach with that. And if you look at, at the video of it, it's it's creating retraction of the rib cage. It's the rib cage that you're seeing going back. Uh, you know, I'm trying to keep the middle of the top of my skull over the middle of my pelvic floor. I'm trying to keep my weight on the heels. So, I, you know, when I'm coaching people through the exercise, I start the exercise at the top. OK, like grab around the med ball, grab a cable you're going to grab the the cable on the left side of the rack with your right hand and the cable on the right side of the rack with your left hand so that it pulls you across the med ball and then like really squeeze the med ball as if you were trying to pull the med ball through your chest, through your back. Uh, And that action will really retract the rib cage way back. Um, And then stand up, get as tall as you can and feel the feel that your head the middle of your head is over the middle of your pelvic floor and as you descend into the squat I need you to really keep the weight on your heels and I need you to not let your butt travel backwards relative to your head I want you to imagine like you can drag the ground backwards with your heels as if you could hamstring curl the ground as your knees reach forward And that allows you to be able to keep your pelvis under your body and under your head. I I have some people do that exercise and they feel nothing and I'll video them and I'll show them exactly what's happening and their butt is behind their body. It's behind their thorax. It's behind their head or their head is way out in front of their body. Like, I mean, that's what I struggle with in that exercise. The more that you're able to keep your head over your thorax and your thorax over your pelvis And, uh, I mean, it'll, it'll light your hamstrings up like nobody, nobody's business. As you descend, it will, it will kind of like just toe your pelvis into more and more of a posterior tilt, which will leverage the hamstrings to come back up. All I want you to think about is that you are pushing the ground straight through your heels and the exercise gets more and more challenging, harder and harder and harder as you get closer and closer to the top. Uh, You know, it just it feels like your hamstrings could not possibly contract more forcefully than they do in that activity. Um, And again, it's sort of like, where do people go wrong? Uh, The head's too far out in front or the butt's too far behind. And then you take you, you just put the hamstrings on slack and they just don't have any leverage to be able to to do the action that I want them to do in that in that particular movement.
1: Yeah, well, I was really interested in the hamstrings in that movement because I'm I'm a person who really struggles to recruit my hamstrings in a lot of activities. Um, hamstrings are super weak, and so I saw that and I was like, okay. like, And I, I was getting a little bit. Uh, and so it's the posterior tilting of the pelvis and the shortening of the hamstrings that makes them more available. Is that, is that the mechanism that's getting the hamstrings to engage more in that particular exercise?
0: Yeah, I mean the hamstrings attach to the ischial tuberosity on the backside of the pelvis – so they, and they also attach to the tibia at the bottom on both sides. So it's, it's trying to create impingement between ischial tuberosity and tibia. Like I'm trying to bring your posterior pelvis closer to the front of your knees, uh, in all honesty. And if I do that, I'll shorten the hamstrings. I'll leverage them. And if I can keep them in that position, as you begin to push the ground, I'm going to teach you how to push through a hamstring, um, and I think that that's a that's that's what I really want to be able to train the pelvis in the sagittal plane. Um, but, yeah, I, I just I just simply see it as like every time that that exercise and I get some people that are like, oh, this exercise doesn't do anything for me. And I'm like, well, I mean, like, let's well, you got to see what you're doing here. Like, because when I'm, I'm looking at you and I, I understand that that's doing nothing for you and and it's really the relationship of the pelvis uh, to the rest of the axial skeleton, that's that's not that's not holding up here. and and it's like it's it's that's a hard exercise. I don't start people there on day one. Like like day one people have no business doing that exercise. I'm gonna start that person like probably on their back just to be able to learn how to find and feel hamstrings. People that really struggle with finding and feeling hamstrings, I'll usually put them in some kind of a hook lying position, um, just because it's like it's gonna shorten the hamstring at the knee. And, um, you know, they're, they're probably less likely to use other things to try to try to be their hamstrings like calves or, um, you know, quads, things, things that have no business doing those actions. But will I'll get a lot of people that will feel like way too much quad or, uh, just funky things where you're like, I don't even know how you're managing to do that. But, uh, it's probably this, this relationship between axial s- skeleton structures,
1: so in, in, say, a traditional barbell back squat, optimally, someone should be feeling, I, I mean, I've seen the EMGs of the different phases of the of the squat itself, but optimally, someone should be feeling some hamstring even in the course of a traditional squat then, or is that going to be different for uh, yeah, different I mean, types of people? Yeah, I mean, like,
0: it's just, it's just sort of like, uh, when I'm squatting people, I'm not, I, I don't coach them to try to feel things as much when they're really squatting. Like, I, I just want them to attack the squat, like. There's, there's a time to feel and be cognizant of where your body is in space. And there's another time to just be an absolute savage and just to, like, try to destroy everything. And generally speaking, when I'm just coaching people to squat, like, I, the only thing I really want them to be aware of, for the most part, is their feet. Like, I want you to push the ground. I want you to be anchored through your heels. And I want you to have your big toes down. Like, I, I usually use the cue of, like, I want you to push on a tiny gas pedal under your big toe and go about 10 miles an hour in a parking lot, um, and that's about it. Like other than that, be aggressive. Try to destroy this thing. Um, you know, it's it's. I'm looking for external cues, aggression and um, and force during things like a, a weight room back squat, versus that other exercise is kind of some sort of gray area hybrid assistance exercise that will really teach people how to push through hamstrings and how to keep a pelvis under their skull and thorax.
1: Yeah, sure. Thing. That was another kind of question I uh, had, had in the list for you. I think you kind of took care of it a little bit right there. It's like there's a time to be mindful and a time to turn your brain off. <laughs> and uh, so in in terms of like once you get to those big lifts, So your uh kind of uh attitude towards that you could say is using some of the other movements to create the sensory information and mindfulness, but when you get to the the big lifts in the training, you usually have your athletes get get into that savage mode?
0: Yeah, I mean it's like all contextual and to a certain degree. Like I think that there's some people that are totally mindless and um they don't wanna be mindful. They don't wanna have any sensory input and If I could somehow shift those people into just gaining a little bit of sensory information and and feeling and and gaining a little bit more respect and appreciation and awareness of their body, it's probably going to do them some good. And then there's like people on the other side of the coin that are like, you know, like I, I see these people train and they do like four reps in an hour because like everything needs to be so perfect. And I'm like, dude, you need to just friggin' work hard, like stop it. You are you have no fitness Like you are, you are the most sensory aware monk amongst us, but you are weak. You're out of shape, like just crush it. Like, so it's sort of like, uh, I think you, you have to earn your right to go get your sensory and to be mindful and all that kind of stuff by, by like, you know, really training and working hard and like, like, uh, going fast and pushing really hard. Um, and, and on, on the flip side, it's just the other one. So it's like I'm I'm trying to bring things to the middle most of the time in in life like I think people take things to such extremes and um it's almost like I need to say extreme things that go in the opposite direction to just kind of make people somewhat aware that they're they should be questioning their absolutist extreme view because I really fundamentally believe that most complicated issues that we're presented with on this planet, there are more than one correct answer to those issues. And there's probably two divergent correct answers at the same time for most of those issues. And as a result of that, you have to learn to be okay with being uncomfortable with your stance and like being okay with letting it go at a certain point in time so that you truly can alternate and go back and forth between beliefs, movements, whatever it is that that's kind of the paradigm of, of, of the day.
1: Yeah. I, I love that. I love to just kind of like the idea that you were saying, I, I have to say something extreme to move someone towards the middle. Like it's like people almost it, uh, like, it's almost like there's a threshold that gets people's brains even kind of going. So they they're willing to move in a so, so particular direction.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean like, look like power have figured out how to move, the most possible amount of weight in the deadlift, the squat and the bench press. And most of those people go into these big extension patterns and use posterior impingement strategies of their axial skeleton to accomplish those things. That's an extreme. Uh, Then on the opposite side, if you want to find and feel and become as aware of your body as you possibly can, you probably need to flex. You probably need to create impingement strategies on the front side of your body and maintain relationships in space between skull, thorax, pelvic floor. Uh, and then be able to feel the way that arms and legs move in relation to that, the way that arms and legs drive axial movement. And also being able to, to keep your axial skeleton in certain positions and dissociate your appendicular skeleton from, from the axial skeleton. Uh, and, and that will build tremendous awareness and sensory motor competencies. I, I would just like a situation where you can do both of those things, ultimately, uh, and that you're not married to either end of the spectrum, and that you can kind of do all of those activities somewhere in the middle as well. I ultimately think that's kind of the place that that I'm living in in my head in terms of like what's the best way to ultimately train an organism for strength, power, force, fitness related outcomes that are not necessarily competing in a strength sport, uh, you know, like everybody else, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I think that's uh, a great thought, a great uh, way to fin- kind of finish up the podcast. Is was kind of running out of time uh, today. I think that really wraps up all the questions I had and how you answered them and uh, just the mentality that people should have too when, when kind of looking at this whole thing. So uh, that's great, man. I, I uh, thank you for your time today. I, I really it was great having you on, Pat. And I, I appreciate all the uh, great information that you uh, laid down for us today.
0: Well, thank you, Joel. I appreciate you getting up early on the West Coast. I I don't I didn't realize that you were in uh, in San Fran. So uh, you know I, I would have been way more accommodating had I known. I figured you know most of the people I talk to are, are either on the East Coast or or somewhere over here. So I figured like, hey, 10 a.m. is great. Like you'll be I'll be happy. You'll be happy. <laughs> but uh, you know you're you're definitely like you're pretty hardcore to get up on a on a Saturday at, uh, before seven to to just talk to. To somebody that you haven't met before, so I, I have a, nothing but respect for that.
1: Hey, okay, thanks, man. Well, it's not the earliest I've gotten up for one of these things, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was a wonderful dude. that does it for another episode thanks for tuning in today i'm sure you left that one just having a better appreciation for just the amazing dynamics behind human movement breathing what the body does to survive and how we can be better coaches with that in our back pocket or at the front of our mind before we just tell somebody to go the other direction that lift and to straighten up and to appreciate everything that the human body does in in its movement systems And I'm really happy that Pat was unable to share that with us. So uh, again, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end trading technology. And if you enjoyed the podcast, don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We would really appreciate it. We'll see you back next week with another great guest.